welcome to this episode of JPod, a High Library production from the campus of Elizabethtown College. I'm your host, librarian Josh Cohen. Today on the podcast, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lauren Toot, Assistant Professor of Chemistry, and her student Justin Cosgrove, a biochemistry and molecular biology double major. And uh, today's episode will be focused on testing for Lyme disease. Justin worked with Dr. Toot as his advisor to try to develop a more sensitive and faster uh, immunoassay. I'm pronouncing that wrong, probably. Immunoassay. Is that it? Uh, And I even practiced that, too, believe it or not. Uh, An immunoassay test for Lyme disease during his SCARP project. Uh, For those not familiar, uh, SCARP is an acronym at eTalent. It stands for Summer Creative Arts and Research Program. And what it is is a program that allows students the opportunity to work on an independent study with a faculty sponsor or advisor over the summer months. So thank you both for uh, coming to talk with me today about your research. I had to look up that word immunoassay, which I I was not familiar with that term, but to my understanding, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be wrong, is a biochemical test, and in this case, it's looking at enzymes in the blood, is that correct? Close. We're going to be looking at uh, proteins in the blood. Proteins in the blood, Mm -hmm. okay. Which... So, So isn't there... There is a Lyme test that looks at enzymes, a Lyme test, right? Most of them look uh, at proteins or antibodies. Okay, so I'm totally wrong on that point. I mean, an enzyme is a type of protein, so okay. it's, not, it's not completed. So I first read about this project in an E-Town Now interview online that stated that you were, quote, developing magnetic beads to help increase the speed, sensitivity, and selectivity of current tests for Lyme disease. Can you please explain, um, this could go to either one of you, uh, what this development of of magnetic beads means, explaining it to somebody who is not a chemistry person. Um, So these magnetic beads are are basically like tiny little spheres, like on a micrometer scale, um, that are like tiny magnets. And so uh, typically when you do different types of biochemical assays, like you said, you do them in this plastic plate, and so you just have like this plastic surface where you're performing the test. But we are performing the test on these little magnets, and we basically put proteins on the magnet that capture um, a molecule that is from Lyme disease. And so if your blood sample has, has Lyme disease in it, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, then it will capture Uh, that molecule and then we go from there um, in our detection Uh, but these little magnets have a lot of surface area and so all that surface area makes the opportunity for different binding interactions um, a lot more plentiful and so everything can happen much faster uh, because there's so much more opportunity for it to happen so now we're talking about very very tiny uh, magnetic beads here yes like one micrometer Okay. Yeah, so that's 10 to the negative 6th of a meter. That's very small. Yes, yeah. So you can't really distinguish them. It kind of looks like, just want to explain what they look like? If they're mixed in well, it's, it just looks brown. It's okay. like you can't see the, the beads at all. It's just brown. Okay. And how, how do they attract the, this particular protein that you're looking for? So the beads are, cov- are covered in, 
instructabinin, right? Mm-hmm. And what is that? It's it's a specific protein okay. uh, that uh, binds really strongly to a small molecule that's called biotin. And so it, this streptavidin biotin is a really common way to provide a link between two different things. Okay. Um, and so it provides a link between the magnetic uh, beads and then the molecule that Justin puts on the beads. Um, which do you want to tell him about um, that molecule? Yeah, it's, it's auto-SBA or outer surface protein A. Um, okay. It's found on the outside surface of the bacterium that causes Lyme. So that's what we biotinylate to then stick on the beads. Now, nobody had tried this before with testing for Lyme? Not that we're aware of. They've used this technique before, but not on the magnetic beads. Okay. Um, So there's been uh, people using the OSPA uh, molecule to then uh, kind of reach out and bind to human antibodies. So if someone is infected with Lyme disease, then their immune system will create these antibodies that bind to the Lyme bacteria. And so they'll also bind, one of the things they bind to is that OSPA that we've put on the the beads. And so we can put the beads in, and if they have Lyme disease, their antibodies will come and bind to the beads. And so the unique thing is that it's on the beads. There are other assays that have used that OSPA um, interaction with our immune system before. So you're, but you're not looking at the antibodies. You're looking at a protein that's found in Lyme disease specifically, right? So we're doing... Or both. Yeah, we're doing both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, Justin, I have a question for you. So what got you interested in working uh, on a test for this specific disease? And did you already, were you already aware about shortcomings with current tests for Lyme disease? So I went to, like, to Dr. Toot because I wanted to, like, to do SCARP. And this is this was one of the projects that she was working on at the moment, and I thought that sounded cool. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, sure. And so had sure. you so you'd heard of Lyme disease? Yes, yes. I knew a little bit about it. Yes, not a ton actually. I yeah. I was actually a little concerned go- going into SCARP because I strictly knew it came from ticks and there there was a bullseye rash. Right, right. So I'm like, will this hurt me at all? But it, it was <laughs> yeah. fine. It was fine. And how did you end up getting interested in this particular area of research? So I have always been, I guess in my academic career, uh, creating different diagnostic tests. And so that's kind of my passion to think of new ways to be able to diagnose people, whether it makes it more fast or more cost effective. And so... I think Lyme disease came to mind. I had I had a friend when I was in graduate school who had Lyme disease and had very long-term effects, like took a long time to figure out that they actually had had that disease. And then I also, moving up to Pennsylvania, heard about it even more than uh, where I was from in Tennessee and Kentucky and because uh, it is very, very prevalent here. And so it just keeps coming up that, oh, people have this disease, but then it's always like, oh, it takes forever for them to figure out that they do. So it's like, oh, well, I design diagnostics, so maybe this is a problem that um, I could help solve. And so had you had you already started working on this test before you started working on the SCARP with Justin? Or was this um, like sort We of... started 
I started with two senior research students last year. Okay, so this has been an ongoing but project. It's, of it's yours. yeah, relatively new um, okay. for for a research project because we usually. Now you were talking about the the increased prevalence in in Pennsylvania. So I'd just like to talk a little bit about Lyme disease and what it is. I think most people are probably at least a little bit aware of it, at least in Pennsylvania. But yeah. uh, I recently learned, I think this was last year, the year before, that, that Pennsylvania has the highest number of Lyme disease infections in the country, which I did not know. I thought it would be like New York or... Yeah. Um, but maybe at one point it was New York. But it's Pennsylvania now, uh, which was surprising to me. It's a disease that, as Justin was mentioning, infects people via a deer tick bite and... I know that if it isn't treated it can, uh, with antibiotics fairly quickly after the infection, uh, sometimes it can have uh, some serious uh, consequences, sometimes leading to potentially chronic health problems. Is, is that your basic understanding or am I, am I incorrect in any of those statements? No, that sounds, that sounds correct. Okay. I, I myself have mainly read that you can have very long-term effects. Um, mm-hmm. And if it goes untreated, it can even go dormant for a little while and then co- then come back and give symptoms again. Um, and definitely you want to, tr- you can just treat it with antibiotics. And if you do that early on, um, it seems like we have a fairly uh, good rate of recovery. Um, but uh, it does go into your joints and uh, cause arthritis and things like that if, if it's left untreated for a while. Mm. Is there anything else about the disease that you think might be lo- useful for listeners to know? Like uh, if they, if they a, get a tick bite or I don't know. Right. I think some good things to know is it is really the deer tick, um, or that's also called the black-legged tick, that is the most common uh, like vector of the, the um, disease. And so those are like the really tiny ticks. Um, so the ones that are like the size of a poppy seed, so they're hard to see. Mm. Um so usually, I was just thinking for myself, right? Like I see the big ticks, and I'm like, oh shoot, that's got to be <laughs> a, a problem. Yeah. Uh, but it's really the tinier ones that you need to uh, be careful of. I was looking at some data, and there's a lab that does test ticks for Lyme disease. Lyme disease. Yeah. yeah, and they for their they tested 70,000 70, samples, something like that, and almost 30 percent of the ones that they had tested of the deer ticks did come back. Um, positive. So just letting people know, just be very aware, right, of, of those smaller ticks and if you do get a tick bite. And uh, then also just knowing that just because you don't have the rash, it doesn't appear um, in all infections. So just, mm. so just that for, is a good indicator, but it's not uh, a guarantee that you don't have it otherwise. So, so just to clarify, so the one of the common symptoms is considered the bullseye rash, which is a rash that looks like a bullseye uh, where the bit has taken taken place. And, right, and, so, and that's how yeah. it would look on more Caucasian skin. Right. So you also right, right. have to uh, be aware of different complexions and stuff. That makes sense. That makes um, sense. Yeah. So. But not then, everybody even. But not but everybody even, who gets it actually gets any kind of rash right. symptom. Right, and then other symptoms are much more like general flu-like symptoms um, or joint pain. Um, but the tick does have to be. It takes 18 to 24 hours for transmission to occur. So if you uh, catch your tick bites fairly um, quickly, then that is also better better for you and less likely for you to have the disease. So, yeah. Yeah. And I guess there are people that can get it 
not know they were even bit by a tick because the tick will fall off after a right. certain amount, right? Right. Yeah, for and sure. So they might not know that they even got bit by a tick. Right. So that's when you have to right, start that hunt, which is why so many people, I think it takes a while to figure out if they have the disease or not because you might not get the rash. You might just feel like you have the flu, right? There could be a lot of a lot of things going on. And so you typically do look for, have you been in an area where there might have been a lot of ticks? Do you have the rash or not? What are your symptoms? And then if all those things start to point to Lyme disease being a, a viable option, then you can um, move on to testing, which would be more similar to what our assay would be used for. So on that point, I know that the current tests that are available for Lyme disease can often be unreliable. Can you explain to listeners why uh, current tests are unreliable or can be unreliable? Yeah, so current tests are similar to the one we're working on right now, and they um, do detect the immune response um, to Lyme disease. They don't directly detect the Lyme bacteria in your blood. And so it usually takes anywhere from 3 to 30 days for your immune response to be uh, strong enough that it can be detected by these tests. So if you go in a week after you've been bit by a tick, uh, you might get a negative result, not because you don't have Lyme, but just because your immune response isn't large enough to detect yet. And so that is one of the problems. Another problem is that when you're detecting this immune response, uh, our body keeps antibodies around. We kind of know this with COVID, right? Even after you're better, you can still test positive for COVID. Mm-hmm. Even after you're better from Lyme disease, you can still test positive for Lyme disease. Um, so it doesn't tell you what we call if you have an active infection or mm-hmm. not. It just tells you that you have been exposed yeah, at some a- point. So those are uh, some of the things that cause inconsistencies in the tests. And then uh, some of the tests that are run are also subject to some interpreta- human interpretation. And uh, the more you have human interpretation, the more inconsistencies you can, you can see. Now, I know that some doctors feel that any test positive for Lyme disease means the person has Lyme disease. But for others, they say, well, you have to have both these like, multiple tests that are positive in order to make the diagnosis. Is that, is that accurate? So the CDC, the recommended recommendation from the CDC right now is that you have um, a enzyme immunoassay. If that comes up positive, then you do a second type of test that's called a Western blot, and both of those have to come up positive for you to be considered um, positive for a Lyme. So as that's the, the CDC. CDC yeah. Okay. Yep. So yeah. So in the Etown Now article, Lauren, you had stated that. You hope that the test might improve uh, both speed and reliability. It is, I think it's my understanding that in, in terms of the reliability, you think that this test could be more reliable because it's looking at a, a different kind of protein than they typically look at? Yes, that's, and the, that's mag- true. And the magnetic bead usage. Right. So the magnetic bead kind of gives the hopefully more sensitive and faster. And then... The magnetic beads also kind of allow us to detect two things at once. So our plan is that we'll create a magnetic bead that detects the immune response. So that's very similar to what's being done right now. Just hopefully we'll do it much faster and, and much more sensitive. Um, but then also we want to design a magnetic bead um, that detects uh, directly the bacteria in your blood. And so the combination of the two 
we're hoping can provide much more um, accuracy because being able to directly detect uh, the bacteria would let you know you have an active infection also may be or should hopefully be present um, before maybe your immune response is and so that can kind of solve some of those downfalls. Okay and what would be the next step for you at this point in the development process for this new test? Yeah, so we're very much in the development stages. Justin's made some great uh, progress this summer on uh, using the magnetic beads uh, for detecting the immune response like we talked about. And uh, so we're going to continue to um, optimize that method uh, to make it as streamlined and as quick as possible and give us the best signal that we can get. And then uh, we'll then move on to working to detect create the bees that will detect the actual uh, protein from the bacteria. Okay. Um, and that will kind of be our next big step in the project. And once we get both of those to created, then we'll see how they work together. I see. So would yeah. this be another SCARP project? Would you continue working on it? Uh, yeah, I, I don't see why not. <laughs> so are you, yeah. are you, is yeah. this something that you're, is this like a summer thing? Uh, we'll just kind of, I usually have a couple projects going in my lab and even just during the school year, all during the school year now. too. So, um, just kind of depending on what students are interested in, this will probably be continuing for the next few years. So, okay. Yeah. And so, once you've finished developing it, how do you do? You have to do? Do you like patent it? Do you test it? Start testing it on patients? Yeah. So the next step that I foresee is there are um, places that you can uh, purchase different patient samples or you can different patient samples can be donated uh, so you can actually test okay we know this works in the lab but does it work on an actual human sample that's two very different things so you usually get a diagnostic to work in the lab then you uh, find some patient samples or um, create mimic patient samples see does it work on that and then if it works there then you can move on to thinking about actual development okay Um, but you would have to go through very stringent um, tests on sensitivity and, and specificity and be approved by the FDA and all of those things if it was actually going to make so it ha- all the way to being used by, by patients. So have you had experience with tests you've developed yet being, being available to use for patients? No, I have not, yeah. Okay. The furthest I've gotten is, is testing patient samples, but okay. I haven't gotten through the f- to the full development yet. Wow. Well, it's exciting. It's exciting work. How would you describe the development process? And both of you, I guess, could talk about that. Yeah, on, I mean, on my end, it's been a lot of failure. Um, yeah. That I've definitely had a bunch of tests where either I mess up or things just don't work. And it, yeah, it's it's been good for me. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but failure. Uh, I think Bob Dylan said, "There's no success like failure, and failure is no success at all." <laughs> So, yeah, because you learn from it, right? Yes, so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So has it been frustrating? I mean, at times, sure, yeah. because you, you want to um, to make it work, of course, and and just to see it doesn't, like, what is that? What was that part of the test? Was that, um, did I mess this part up? Did I waste a day? Yeah, it, yeah it's just, yeah. A lot of trial and error. For sure, for sure. But I guess that's the nature of the beast when you're talking about chemistry, right? Yes, yes. Any any researcher doing something that hasn't been done before, so 
just got to figure out what works. And I always tell them negative results are just as good as positive because now we know that doesn't work. So we won't try that again and we'll go on to our next idea. So. And what has the development process been like for you for this particular test? Um, it's been super fun for me. It goes back kind of to my favorite part of science maybe and kind of takes me back to grad school a little bit. Um, I really enjoy working with antibodies and proteins and, and designing and different ways for them to detect and disease. So, uh, yeah, I think it's been good. Justin has had failures, but not a ridiculous amount. He's done pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we've had, we've had some good positive results that have kept me motivated through the summer. So that's great. Yeah. Thank you. And you said, did you love working with antibodies and protein? So as, as somebody who's not a chemistry person, what, what, what about working with those kinds of things do you love? I think I, I really enjoy how antibodies are specific per, for proteins. Like you can have an antibody that just binds to this one protein. So it's just crazy to me that it allows you out of this really complex blood sample or whatever to pull out one thing and learn something about the disease state of a patient. And then I'm just very motivated by helping people through my work. That's kind mm. of uh, what... I've always been motivated by and so being able to see that I could actually create something that could help diagnose a disease that can then help someone receive treatment is is motivating. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and in the failures and successes have has the chemistry pro you know just working with the chemistry been fun for you or has it been more just work like this is my scarf and I gotta like this is my project and I just want to try to succeed. Yeah, I, well, I mean, of course, I want to get it right, but there has been—it's definitely been fun to, to like, to get my hands dirty, and like, the classroom is great to learn, but like, the lab you can experience and see what works and why, or why not, and it's it's fun, yeah. So. This might be a difficult question. This is my last question here. And if you, if you don't have an answer, that's okay. But have you, uh, are you aware of there being previous attempts to improve the ELISA test? I think that's the ELISA is the name of the, the typical or one of the, the main uh, line tests, right? Correct. Uh, have there been other attempts to improve it? And, and if so, do you know why they haven't succeeded? Yeah, so I don't have like a full handle on the literature. I'm, I'm, I know that... People have tried to improve upon it. I know that there are also people exploring other types of diagnostics that aren't ELISA-based. So some stuff I've read about um, is more PCR-based. And so this what is, what is P- PCR, PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction, and it is a method uh, for detecting DNA. So you're not looking at proteins anymore. You're looking at DNA. And the ELISA is specific to proteins. Right, right. And so... Those methods um, are being developed, and just right, just are a different a different type as far as you're detecting yeah. now the DNA of the of the bacteria. Uh, you take different uh, uh, steps to prepare samples. You don't use necessarily blood samples in those situations. Sometimes I guess you could. So um, I know there's work being done. I think that probably a big reason we haven't seen a huge change in how Lyme disease has been diagnosed in the last probably at least 20 years, (laughs) um, is all of the 
just regulations to be approved by the FDA and to prove that you're not just that your diagnostic works, but that it works better than what currently is being used. And so that approval process, I'm sure, is uh, takes a while for something to kind of surpass and replace the kind of gold standard method that's been used for a long time. So, so if you did successfully create a better Lyme disease test, do you see that as being a project that takes you like 10 years in terms of like from start to actually getting something that's available to patients or is it a shorter or if you don't know that's okay too yeah I think it would it would take our lab probably another three years or so um, to kind of complete the part of the project that I understand okay and then uh, moving it past that stage getting into the government yeah I do not know anything about how that, that works process or how long that yeah because yeah. i i mean certainly with with covid because it was this such a coordinated response uh effort mm-hmm. it seems like the process was extremely quick and not typical of what that process either you know whether we're talking about testing or vaccines uh that was an unusual right yeah, situation yeah, where for sure yeah for sure yeah uh, where you had like all hands on deck kind of situation yeah and they got to prioritize right the government has to prioritize what they're what they're focusing on at the moment so or funding and yeah yeah, yeah. all right well it's very interesting thank you so much uh, yeah, both for your for time yeah. and uh, it's a fascinating project i wish you luck uh, with the continuing research and uh, an improved test for Lyme would be an amazing accomplishment so i hope i hope you succeed and uh, kudos on your on your work this summer good job right. justin yeah. thank, thank you very much <laughs> Thank you for listening to the J-Pod, a high library production. I'm your host, librarian Josh Cohen. Be sure to check back in with us for another episode from the E-Town College community. If you have any ideas for future episodes or feedback, please email me at cohenjp at etown.edu.